Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. We began last week talking about false teachers. Uh, and that's where we'll pick it up today as we continue in 2 Peter chapter 2. As we continue looking at this, at, Paul, at Peter's portrait of false teachers. This is one of the most devastating chapters in the New Testament. Uh, it's a strong chapter. We're going to be spending three weeks in it. So this is the second week that we're in this chapter. And so the question you might ask is, why are we spending so much time talking about false teachers? Why are we spending so much time talking about false teaching? Uh, you got to remember the context. The context of, of this is standing firm in our faith. So we want to have that firm foundation on which we can stand. And sometimes in order to know the foundation, you got to look at the bad as well as the good. you got to look at the bad so you can know how to counter it, so how you can react against it. And I want you to know that there's nothing more offensive to God than a misrepresentation of His Word in our teaching and in the way we live. Let me say that again. There's nothing more offensive to God than a misrepresentation of His Word in our teaching and in our living. So 2 Peter chapter 2 talks about false teachers. But as we delve a little bit more into the passage, you'll see it has more to do with false living than it does false teachers. It kind of describes the culture in which we live. We find ourselves in a, in a culture that, that is intellectually, morally, and spiritually is going against God. And so we want to know how to address that. So not only does it talk about our culture, but it's talking about, it describes a kind of church member that exists in the world today. So we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 17, under the heading, How to Recognize False Teachings. Remember, it's false teaching, but it's also false living. So let's look at what Peter has to say in uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. This is especially true of those who follow this corrupt, this, the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing wrong doing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with the man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them." We, we see in this passage three truths that I can pull out. Well, there's probably more, but I'm going to give you three. False teachers are intellectually bankrupt. Look at verse 10, the first part of it. 
He says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. This goes back and ties into the previous passage when these individuals denied the sovereign Lord. They denied that the Savior who saved them, they said, we will not be under your rule. We will not be under your sovereign authority. So it's talking about those individuals there. And then he ties it in verse uh, the second part of verse 10. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. These individuals abuse their intellect and they reject the very thought of God. They blaspheme the holy things of God. Anybody with any moral or anybody with uh, any normal intelligence can look at the world and know there's a created being. Now, I know I'm coming at it from a theological perspective, and others may not come at it from that perspective. But if you just look at the creation, you look at the world around you, it screams out there's a mover and shaker. There's a divine mover and shaker somewhere. Paul says in the book of Romans that all of creation cries out that there is a God. All you got to do is open your eyes and look at it, and you will see it. The creation itself gives testimony that there is a God, the physical creation. But there are individuals who would deny the existence of God, say God does not exist. They look at the world scientifically and they say, this does not prove that there is a God. When we look at it and say, yes, it does prove there is a God. But they mock and they blaspheme those individuals who say there is a God that there is a God of creation, and they, they begin to, to mock it in society, in the culture in which we live. If you believe in a God, you're mocked and you're made fun of, and you're ridiculed. These individuals are bold, but not only are they bold, it says they're arrogant. They begin to exalt themselves in a place that does not belong to them. This is the, the, the very crux of secular humanism. Secular humanism takes God off the throne and places man on the throne. In other words, the world revolves around man and not around God. It's man's world and not God's world. It takes God off the throne and puts man on the throne. It puts him on a place that does not belong to him. In verse 11, Peter says, look, even angels won't do that. Even angels, even though they're stronger, they're more powerful, more intellectually superior than, than humanity, they won't even do that. There's a great illustration of this in Jude. Uh, Jude chapter verse 9 says this, Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil for the body of Moses, did not bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Even angels won't dare to go into that realm to blaspheme spiritual things. There are those today who abuse their intellect because they make fun of holy things. They make fun of things that are holy to them. Verse 12, he, re, he shows how intellectually bankrupt they are when he com begins to compare them to animals. He says they are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. He says they become like animals. They begin to abandon their brains and they follow after their passions. When you eliminate the belief in God and you eliminate belief in spiritual things and you take the spiritual out of the elements of your life, 
you lower yourself down to the very levels of animals. Uh, let's, let's look at this way. Think of those individuals who, have, who see no spiritual component in the sexual experience. Okay, they see no spiritual component, component about, about how, how it's a union that's created uh, by God. They see no spiritual connection with that. And so what they do, because there's no spiritual connection, they're basically satisfying their glands. They're satisfying their, their baser appetites. They're satisfying those things just to quench this thirst that they have in their life. But they see no spiritual connotation in that marriage union that God has ordained. He says when they become like that, they're nothing more than brute beasts. They're nothing more th than animals. And what do you do with those type of brute beasts? He says there's nothing but they are caught and they are destroyed. They become like animals who, who, who give in to their desires and the cravings of their flesh and they wind up being caught by their own desires and they're trapped and all you can do is destroy these animals. People begin to live this sinful lifestyle. They begin to buy into it. And what happens when you reject the, uh, this, it provides you uh, no moral compass. You don't have any way to go. And when you take it away, you're headed for destruction. In verse 13, look what he says. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Sin is going to rob you. Sin is going to take away from you. Sin does not pay. Oh, it pays. The wages of sin is death. But sin is going to rob you of that which God has created you to have. God has created you to have harmony with Him, to have a relationship with you. But when you sin and you continue down that pathway, that lifestyle of sin, it denies you the ability to have happiness and a, and a full life that God has designed for you to have in Jesus Christ. So the people are spiritually, they're intellectually bankrupt. Not only are they intellectually bankrupt, false teachers are morally bankrupt. Look at verse 13. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. He's talking about a particular kind of church member. Now, I don't think it's talking about anybody in here. So y'all are okay, I think. Okay, but if it applies to you, well then, you know, see me after church, okay? Here's what he's talking about. Look, the majority of church members are good people. The majority of church members, they love God and they want to serve God. The majority of church people that way. But you and I both know there's those certain church members that they're just not quite that way. You know who they are. You go out and you talk to somebody about the church where you attend and they bring up that individual. You know, they bring up that individual that, you know, they know. Or you invite them, hey, why don't you come to our church? Said, yeah, I used to go to church, but I know about it. I know a Christian who goes to that church, and they have a bad reputation. Every time you talk about church, every time you bring up church, they always bring up that one church member or those couple of church members. They bring those people up. These individuals are not ashamed to live a sinful life in the public. They bring shame to themselves. They're not afraid to live simply. This is what Peter is saying. He says they have no fear of who they are, and they are a poor reflection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Peter says they begin to make fun of their own lifestyle. He says they do in the daylight what they used to do in the night. They're not afraid of it. You kids in school, you know how this works. I'm sure it's none, of you, none of your friends do this, but uh, I was a kid who grew up in school, and I went to college, and, and I know the way it is. In, in college or, or in, in high school, even now in middle school, 
the kids will go out, the boys will go out, and, and they'll go out and have a wild party over the weekend. They'll come back to school and go, oh, man, I had a great time this week. I got wasted. I went out and I drank and I was throwing up all over the place. I got high. Man, I had a blast. And then the girls will go out and say, oh, I had such a wonderful time with my boyfriend this past week. We shared intimacy together. They don't use quite those words. We shared intimacy together and they talk about all their friends, about what they did with their boyfriends. Yeah, lost people do that, don't they? No. Church people do it. Church people do it. It doesn't just happen with the lost people. Church people do it. That's the day we're living in, folks. That's the reality of the situation that, that we're living in. It's not just those individuals who claim they're lost. It's not just those individuals that say they have no connection to Jesus. It's good, well, it's Christian kids. So much I saw kids that call themselves Christians and they see no problem about it. I know of a, of a church here in the city. I'm not going to talking bad about the church because I want you to know every pastor is not responsible for the actions of all of his members, all right? You're responsible for your actions. Uh, this young girl went, went, to the, went to the church and she said, I want to find a good boy to meet at church. You know, she'd had a, she'd had a, a child out of wedlock. She said, I don't want to live that way anymore. So she started going to church. And the minute she got in the church, she met a really nice Christian boy and they started having a, you know, a friendly, friendly relationship. They go to parties together and stuff like you know, church functions together. And it wasn't long before the little guy was saying, um, Christian guy sitting in the church. He would say, um, I just want you to know that I believe in having sex. And I'm only going to wait so long before we can have sex. This girl got turned off of the church. Why? Because of the Christian sitting in the pew. It's nothing new. It was going on in the first century. There's nothing new under the sun. It just comes back in various shapes, in various forms. That's the day we're living in. They not only shame themselves, but they shame the church. Notice what Peter calls them. He says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. The phrase blots and blemishes literally means that they are filthy sores and scabs. The NIV softens it a little bit. Filthy sores and scabs. I'm talking about people on the rolls of our churches. They're on the rolls of our churches. And then he goes on in the latter part of verse uh, 13. He says, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. He says, these people fellowship with you. These people sit next to you. Don't, don't look around. They sit next to you in church. They sing with you. They get all emotional in worship and they go through the emotions of worship. But Peter says they are a disgrace to the church and to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we come to our services. People come to services and they want to hear those sermons that make them feel good. I know y'all want that too, don't you? Hang on, we'll get there. Be patient, we'll get there. You don't want those sermons that make them feel good. You know, they want to, you know, oh, pastor, make me feel good. Then they want to run out and live any way they want to live. And there's preachers out there that will teach it. Peter says they are a disgrace to the church. They're a disgrace to the cause of Christ. But what makes it worse? Look what else to do. 
He also said they lead others astray. Look at verse 14. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sitting. They seduce the unstable. They seduce the unstable. They lure them away. You're talking about the weak believer or maybe a new believer, and they turn them away toward a different gospel. They're the kind of people that say, listen, man, you're saved by grace, and you're going to heaven, but it doesn't really matter how you live out there. Paul says, if anyone... If anyone ever comes and preaches to you any other gospel than the gospel that I preach, let them be cursed. Let them be cursed. Not my words, Paul's words. Matter of fact, Eve says, look, if I even come and start giving you a different gospel, let me be cursed. This is what Peter is saying in this passage. And listen, there are churches all over the country. This is what they're teaching. This is what they're teaching. I know you find it hard to believe that right here in the shadow of the, well, the second largest Baptist university in the country, it's Liberty University now, but uh, the largest Baptist university in the shadows of that great university that we could have that being taught in our churches right here in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Right here. I used to always think, tells you how naive I am, if you just preach God's word, people will come. People will come. No. That's not true. People don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear a truth that makes them feel good. But I'm being hard. These individuals are teaching this and people buy into it. Notice what else he says, but he says they are experts in greed. This word experts means they're trained. They're well-versed. They know how to entice you. They know how to lead you astray. I always think about those guys that got that dazzling smile. You know, and they, and they look in the mirror and they practice their smile. You know, oh yeah, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. You know, they practice a smile, they, they work up on their vocabulary to dazzle you with their vocabulary uh, and stuff like that. I used to have a first church I pastored at, had an English teacher, and she always came up to me after church, Pastor, and I loved her to death, great, great woman. She says, I got to correct a few things you, you said in your sermon. You know, you dangled some participles, you had some double negatives and stuff like that. And she goes, you know, you're just butchering the king's English. I said, I said, Alma, did you understand what I said? She said, yeah. I said, then we're okay. She's okay. She says, no, no. She goes, I just think you're going to go somewhere in, in, in Southern Baptist life, and I just want to make sure that you get this right. And, uh, you know, but you got those people out there, they're, they're sharp. They got charisma, and they got charm, and they got the smile. Why do they do that? Because they are experts at greed. They are experts at greed. They know how to manipulate you to get it. To them, it's all about money. If I can just get a little bit more money, I'm doing okay. They know how to entice you and lead you astray. Then he gives us an Old Testament example in verses 15 and 16. He talks about Balaam. Balaam is one of the more interesting characters in the Old Testament. Balaam was a prophet. He was a prophet for hire, and he was hired by the king of Moab to pronounce curses upon the children of Israel. 
And so he was on his way to, um, to uh, curse, uh, to prophesy against the children of Israel when he stopped in his tracks by his, his donkey. Okay, I was going to use the other word, uh, the donkey, which I always find a great bit of consolation in this verse. If God can speak through a dumb donkey like that, I feel confident he can use me. Yeah, I heard that amen. <laughs> and so the donkey begins to speak to Balaam. And basically the donkey says, you can't do this. And so Balaam is, is frustrated because he's been hired to curse or to corrupt the people of Israel, but he can't do that. He says, okay, since I can't curse them, since I can't corrupt them, I'm just going to compromise them. And so he goes and he begins to tell them and said, you can do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. That was back in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, John said, writes these, I have, I have a few things against you. Jesus is saying this to the church. I have a few things against you. You have people who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. He said, idolatry was all right. Immorality was all right. That, that they would deceive them morally to do what God's Word says you cannot do. You cannot do. They're blots. They're blemishes. They're scabs and sores for the testimony of the gospel. One more truth. We'll move on. False teachers are spiritually bankrupt. Verse 17, he gives us two illustrations of this. He says, men are, these men are springs without water. That's the first he gives us. He gives us a well without water. Years ago, I was a surveyor before I was called by God to, to be a pastor, I was a surveyor, and I was out with my crew, and we were down in a river bottom, and we were doing a, a location of a street, and we were doing cross-sections, taking a topographical survey so we could figure out how the water drained and how we could design the road. And so we was down there, and it was hot. It's like 105 in, on, in the summer. In July, it was hot. And we'd been down there cutting trees down, cutting brush, so we could do all the work we needed to do. And it was down, it was down you know, 4 o'clock, we started to walk our way out. And we'd been walking up and down creek bottoms all day. We were tired, we were hot, we were thirsty. I could not wait to get back to my truck and put my little cup underneath that little spigot of ice-cold water. Whew, I, could, I could just taste it. We were hot, we were thirsty, and we were tired. So I go there, I put all my equipment up, throw all my equipment off, lay it on the truck, and I put my cup underneath that, that five-gallon igloo, yellow and red top. Oh, it's going to be so good. And I put it in there, and nothing came out. Nothing came out. I took the top off. Nobody put any water in the igloo. That's the first thing they were supposed to do. At 7 o'clock, they were supposed to fill the igloo. They didn't listen to me then. They don't listen to me now. That's basic 101. Fill the igloo. How disappointing it was to not be able to get water. Listen, here's what Peter is saying. Someday you're going to come to a point in your life and you're going to be dry and you're going to need something to quench that thirst that you have. 
And you've been listening to all this false teaching, these false gospel going out there. And you'll go to the well and you'll find out that it's dry. It has nothing to offer you. It offers you no hope. It offers you no help. It's just a dried well. Then he gives us another illustration. He said not only is a spring with no water a well that's run dry, he said also it's a cloud. It's a cloud. He says, what does he call it? He says it's a, a mist driven by a storm. Here's the picture he paints. It's a drought in the land. You got your crop out there. What does this call it? Corn. Okay, we're growing corn. They don't grow corn in Israel, but we grow it here, all right? They grow corn, and it's dry, and it's rotting. It's, it's just so dry. It's bad. Now, it's good if you're making Fritos, because Frito wants it dry. But we're not talking about Fritos, okay? We're talking about we want some good corn on the cob. It's dry, and it's dying. And you're a farmer. You've been praying for rain. All of a sudden, you look on the distance, and there's a cloud. And you look up, and you hear thunder in the background. The animals look up, anticipating something's going to come down. And he goes and said, looks like we're going to get some rain. And then as quickly as it shows up, it dissipates, and it goes away. And your hope of rain is gone. It's the same way of false teachers. You're going to go, and you're going to hope they're going to be able to quench you. You hope they're going to be provide something for you when you're dry and they have nothing to offer you. Just like a dried up well and a cloud that has no rain, you will walk away disappointed in what it is. And then what you do is just walk away from God because God cannot satisfy you. God cannot help you in those times. That's the way it is today. People listen to and they follow false teachers. They buy into that kind of stuff. But one of these days, you're going to have a drought in your life. And you're going to need something that can quench that dryness that you have. Wells without water. Clouds without rain. What does he say about these people? Verse 17. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Peter says, there is a dark hole in hell waiting for these people. Waiting for them. Let me ask you a question. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this one. Have you really received the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Those, oh, but preacher, I go to church. That's not what I asked you. I ask you, do you know for sure? Are you sure that you're sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and as your Savior? If you cannot answer that question, you are accursed. Not my words, God's Word. You are accursed. You are under a curse. And there's a place waiting for you. But, (laughs) I've got some good news. I've got some good news. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for 
us. In other words, Jesus took your place upon the cross. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree to become your curse. He took it away from you. The good news for you is that you do not have to be cursed. You can escape the curse by accepting Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. So this morning, as we come to this time that we close, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard today. Respond to that good news. And I know there's a lot of bad news in there. But aren't you glad that the good news overrides the bad news? Aren't you glad that Jesus could take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west? And as Corey, he, Corey Timboom used to always say, he puts them in the deepest part of the ocean and hangs up a no fishing sign. That's how much God cares for you. And he wants to give you a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. So the praise team is going to come and lead us in a song, a closing song. I'm going to offer us a prayer. If you sense that God is talking to you this morning, communicating to you that you need a relationship with Jesus or maybe you need to be a part of a fellowship of believers. You know, there's some good churches. I, I don't want you to think all churches in Waco are bad. There's a lot of good churches in Waco. I can only vouch for this one. Uh, preacher's okay. He's okay. But maybe you say, you know, I want to be involved in a church that believes the Word of God teaches the Word of God, and tries to live by the Word of God. I said tries. Sometimes we fail. We mess up and we make mistakes. We're still trying to figure this thing out called church, aren't we? We're still trying to figure it out. But I know the closer we get to Jesus, the more we'll look like Him. So perhaps you said, I need to be a part of the Fellowship of Believers. Just, or maybe just to recommit your life. I'll be here with you in the front. Marcy's going to be here as well. We'll pray with you. If you just want to talk to somebody, we'll be here for you. Would you stand with me as I lead us in a time of prayer? Father, we come before you thanking you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we can gather together. Father, we pray that in the quietness of this moment, Father, you will speak to our hearts. You reveal your truth to us, Father, so that we can respond to your goodness. We can respond to your grace. And Father, to your greatness, touch our hearts this morning, Father. Convict us of our sins and our wrongs. Father, move us out of our complacency and our apathy, Father, into the very presence of what you would have us to do, God, as a children, as people, claiming you as our King and as our Lord. Bless this time, for it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.